Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, soon after the coalition lost the federal election last year, one of its surviving senators confided to me how relieved he was to be out of government. This senator said that while in government, about 80% of his encounters with senior public servants were hostile. He said the opinions or objectives of elected conservative representatives like himself were routinely ignored or defied by public servants who had their own ideas about which policies and agendas to pursue. This is not a matter of experienced public servants knowing better than the relatively new elected politicians. Instead, it's about the public servants acting in their own interests, fortifying their own positions and power often at the expense of the people who pay their salaries, which is you and I. Politicians who play along with this can then present the impression that everything is going smoothly to spin their acquiescence into a type of competence. They are following advice from experts and they have the full support of the bureaucracy. It might be smooth, but it's not democratic. For a succinct example of this, have a look at this tweet posted yesterday by Chris Minns, the new Premier of New South Wales. It says, over the last few years, Dr Kerry Chant helped lead our state through the toughest of times, providing expert advice and reassurance at a time of so much uncertainty. Today, the Health Minister and I joined her for a briefing and to launch our flu vaccine campaign. Notice how the praise for chant is the most important part of the message. The supposed reason for the briefing, the launch of a flu vaccine, the sort of thing that has been happening without political fanfare for decades, is almost an afterthought. It's difficult to imagine a more offensive message coming from an incoming political leader. Kerry Chant didn't, as Minns says, lead us through the toughest of times. She led us into them. For much of the pandemic, under former Premier Gladys Berejiklian, she was the most prominent spokesperson in a campaign designed to frighten us 
about COVID and encourage us to take the vaccines that are now proving to have been a catastrophic, sometimes deadly failure. In July 2021, all Australian governments joined their counterparts around the world in emphatically encouraging and often coercing people to get jabbed with vaccines. The problem in Australia, though, was that our supply was restricted mostly to AstraZeneca, about which there were serious apprehensions based on reports on social media about adverse reactions. Indeed, Norway became the first country in the world to permanently ban the AstraZeneca vaccine in May of that year. Other countries would soon follow suit, but Chant was adamant that people should ignore all that, roll up their sleeves and get jabbed. She said, quote, we need to correct the mythology about AstraZeneca. And in the context of the Delta threat, I just cannot understand why people would not be taking the opportunity to go out and get AstraZeneca in droves. And here she is the following month in full dictatorial mode, expressing her dream for all Australians, including homeless people and prisoners, to be jabbed with, where necessary, AstraZeneca. And my dream is to have um, us be the most vaccinated country in the world. And I actually think that um, Australians can do it. I think we can actually achieve well over 90% vaccine coverage. Last week, the AstraZeneca vaccine that Chant so enthusiastically recommended two years ago was pulled off the shelves in Australia because the adverse reactions to it had become too frequent and severe to deny. A class action lawsuit has already been launched against AstraZeneca in Britain, involving people who suffered strokes, heart failure and blood clots, some of whom had limbs amputated. A similar class action is due to be launched in Australia soon. People like Kerry Chant reduced Australia to a totalitarian state during the pandemic scare campaign. Here is what commentator Paul Joseph Watson said about us at the time. Australia is now officially a biosecurity police state. Australia is a post-democratic country. The feeling of relief that the COVID lockdown and vaccine nightmare is over doesn't mean that our leaders have suddenly discarded their totalitarian tendencies. Premier Chris Min's tweet yesterday was confirmation that we are still, in Paul Joseph Watson's words, in a post-democratic state. Minns is aligning himself with an unelected bureaucrat who contributed to a catastrophic medical program. The total deaths in Australia last year were about 25,200 higher than the historical average, an increase of about 15%. Why did so many extra people die? One answer to that might have been provided by Quovax, a long-term study commissioned last year by the Queensland government which involved more than 10,000 vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Quovax had already produced useful insights into the efficacy of vaccines and even won an award when 
As Rebecca Weiser reported in The Spectator Australia recently, funding for the project was suddenly and mysteriously pulled. The Queensland government is now saying it might delete the data Quovax gathered, which should be some of the most useful vaccine efficacy data in the world. Why would the government do that? One of the most plausible answers involves a conflict of interest. If the study found further proof that the vaccines caused widespread harm and didn't stop the virus, then it makes sense that a government that funded and promoted those vaccines would suddenly and inexplicably terminate the study. Of course, that is speculation for now, but even still, given that, why would Chris Minns stand next to one of the vaccine rollout's most prominent advocates? Instead of praising chance expert advice, Minns should be launching a royal commission into why the state's health department and the previous health minister, Brad Hazard, overstated the danger of COVID, COVID so dramatically and pushed vaccines that didn't work anyway and in some cases led to severe or fatal reactions. Minns is also signalling to the people of New South Wales that the government might have changed since the election, <coughs> excuse me, but the public service is back in charge. When Minns's predecessor, Liberal Dominic Perrottet, assumed the Premiership of New South Wales in October 2021, one of the first things he did was cancel the daily fear-mongering COVID update press conferences and remove Kerry Chant from the spotlight. Minza's tweet yesterday reversed that. Will the deep state prevail? It's up to us to answer that question, and the answer will be more complex than merely deciding between Liberal and Labor at the next election. It means, as a society, we need to rediscover our freedoms and fight for them. The Australian Medical Professionals Society, an independent union for doctors and nurses, will hold a conference in Sydney tomorrow to discuss how the profession can restore the faith of the public. AMPS's secretary, Cara Thomas, wrote brilliantly yesterday in The Spectator Australia, explaining that the choice for the medical profession was, during COVID and still is, between intellectual freedom through open scientific discourse and a singular truth prescribed by a dictatorial regime under threat of excommunication. She says, quote, to take a stand for medical ethics, ethics, valid informed consent and evidence-based medicine against the biopharmaceutical censorship complex is an extraordinarily costly risk that has seen people go from prestige to food banks. But is there anything more honourable than refusing to compromise the truth, fighting to protect humanity? Well, I'm very pleased to say Cara joins me now. Cara, welcome. Thank you so much. Firstly, Cara, it is well known that the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency threatened to cancel the licence of doctors or nurses who spoke against the vaccine mandates in 2021. Do you know many doctors or nurses who did so and what price did they pay? I do. I know quite a lot and in this role I've 
met even more and that have either had their registrations suspended under the immediate action clauses of the national law or they've had conditions put on their registration to practice. And that can be a very high price because if you lose your registration to practice, uh, there could be many, many years because the investigations often take a very long time. And so I know consultants that are washing dishes, cleaning houses, selling patios, and we need to understand that to become a consultant doctor in a specialty field, they spend close to 15 to 20 years of study doing their um, undergrad, then they do their med, then they do their internship, and then they've got to get on a training program and that can take six years and they do their study, then they've got to do their fellowship year and then they're a consultant. And that's what they risk. They've spent their whole life working towards something and then to speak up once they become aware of the truth is quite costly. And then in my position as the AMP secretary, I've read many of the letters that have been sent to these practitioners from APRA and it really is quite concerning how they're worded uh, because the sad thing is it's not about the truth and, and of evidence-based medicine that these doctors are speaking about and, and they're seeking optimal patient care. Um, even if they have evidence uh, they're not allowed to speak about it if it undermines the public health messaging because it's about compliance. And so these letters basically say that they're deemed a threat to public health and safety because they failed to comply with public health orders. They undermine the board's position on the promotion of COVID vaccination. They undermine public confidence in the messaging because their medical expert opinion essentially contravened the health authorities. So the raising of safety signals about the provisionally approved vaccines, uh, the fight for early treatments, questioning the government policies, using evidence, which they were also warned by their indemnity insurers. If you look up the um, 12 commandments against uh, APRA notification, one of them says, even if you have the evidence, you can't say it if it undermines the government public health messaging. So basically everything they've worked for, some are now visiting food banks, as I wrote in my article, to basically fight for the healthcare system. And I think that our health system's poorer for their absence. Indeed, it must be. The, you, so you've met some of these people. Just very briefly, what, what effect did this have on them? I mean, it, psychologically, it could easily be quite devastating. Yeah, it, it can be. I think it's, it's very hard for a lot of people when you have the evidence and you've seen the harms. I don't know whether you saw um, Dr. Melissa McCann's speech uh, during the McCullough uh, tour. Um, you can hear it in a lot of people. And I often find myself, I'm quite a, a strong personality, but I still, the emotional toll of being able to read the evidence, being partnership with a lot of these people that have given up an extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary amount um, to basically stand by their oath to first do no harm, it, it is difficult because how, if you've got no avenue to fight, no one will listen to you. It doesn't matter how many letters you write, um, how many submissions you put in, how many phone calls you make. There doesn't seem to be that anybody has to be accountable for any decision-making. It's just the consensus. Yeah. It's more about believing that what the government doing is right than whether the actual policies are good for our communities. It's, it's utterly frightening and it's, it's um, 
We're all, you know, we're very grateful that uh, organisations like AMPS are standing up and, and fighting back against this. You also mentioned that, uh, that women and children suffered um, particularly from this medical practice, uh, malpractice. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, well, essentially, we've always been in the medical profession the most careful with our medical treatments for women and children. Um, because I guess that's the most risky. Um, and pregnant women, if you think about it, told to avoid soft cheese, hams, alcohol, all of these sort of things. But then for some reason, during the time of COVID, we had governments and our regulatory agencies pushing these provisionally approved um, vaccines, which, you know, provisionally approved means that it's lacking in safety and efficacy data, so essentially they're experimental, onto pregnant women um, with very little data. Um, you know, the recently released uh, FOI Advisory Committee on Vaccine Meeting Minutes actually states in there that pregnant women were included in no studies. And the non-clinical report that came out by our FOI also stated that they're not expected to be genotoxic. Um, but they should only be given if the potential benefits outweigh the risks. But there were no exemptions for ATAGI for pregnant workers. You know, that it was unknown. It's actually written in the non-clinical report. It was unknown if these would be excreted in human milk. So there was basically no safety and basically no efficacy data from their own reports. And yes, we pushed them on pregnant women and told them they were safe and effective. And then we pushed these on kids. Um, with essentially mandates for children in care in some places, and that was part of uh, one of the applicants for the uh, children's case uh, was fighting because of those mandates. When they have, you know, kids, healthy kids are at statistically zero risk from COVID according to their own government documents. They literally have no data on genotoxicity, carcinogenicity, reproductive toxicology, pharmacokinetics, immunotoxicity. And by the time they rolled this out for kids, the CEO of Pfizer said, like, literally the day after they rolled this out to kids, the CEO of Pfizer came out and said the first two shots provide minimal, if any, protection against Omicron, which, according to the WHO, was a circulating variant at the time. So the government essentially pushed an experimental therapeutic that the CEO of Pfizer had said didn't work on kids who their own government reports said were at statistically no risk from with no safety data and basically told parents via the consent forms. And you can, I wrote about this uh, in The Spectator a couple of weeks ago. It's called um, Australia's Erosion of Informed Consent and the Avoidable Death of Children because um, you might remember from Melissa McCann talking about, uh, which was also in the Senate um, in, uh, Senate discussions that were these covered up, were the cardiac arrest deaths of children covered up that said they were causally linked. So with no safety data, you know, which seems like a, a massive breach of medical ethics and their own government regulations and legislations. Indeed. A lot of this information is starting to come out, uh, you know, quite, you know, fast these days. You say in your piece, in your wonderful piece in The Spectator Australia, uh, the way you describe it, is that the damn wall of censorship is starting to break. How much more breaking will that damn wall uh, do before we get completely overwhelmed by uh, revelations about this uh, malpractice? Before there's a torrent, eh? Um, hopefully not too long. 
Uh, well, it was interesting because um, Adam Crichton wrote in The Australian not that long ago and he started his article saying the damn wall is finally broken. Um, and what's very interesting and we're starting to see in the mainstream the reports on adverse events, the myths of COVID, like the mask effectiveness, lockdowns, um, safe and effective claims, they're actually starting to come out in the more mainstream. So um, the spectators are already always great at publishing things I write. I think there's very few um, other that will publish the things that I write, but well, you never know, maybe in the not too distant age, future. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, but, but I really think much of this is basically because of the sheer determination of heart and will of some of the incredible people that basically I've become connected with who have just not been prepared to be silenced. Once they became aware of the truth, they thought something wasn't quite right um, and they sought to seek out that truth and they've spoken about the harms of lockdowns, the ineffectiveness of masks and particularly for children and the harm that that has done. Uh, they refused to be silent about effectiveness of early treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. I wrote another paper in Spectator called um, Did the Ivermectin Ban Cost Lives? So, um, And they've continually spoken out about the lack of safety data of the vaccine and I mean at AMPS we've written submissions, open letters, we've run campaigns and we've done many, many, many events. Um, basically just trying to say there's something's not right. This, you know, lots of research trying to get um, our authorities to see and listen to the evidence. We've had meetings with politicians and well, let's talk about yeah, your just let's standing talk by about right. your next event. Mm -hmm. Um, you, I mean, yes. you say the authorities have betrayed Australians during the pandemic by abandoning what you say, abandoning truth, honour and integrity. That's a, it's a heavy call. I mean, I, I, I can't doubt it myself, but uh, um, how will your conference tomorrow restore faith in the medical profession? Well, it'd be nice if one conference could restore a lot of we've lost over the last three years in the time of COVID, but it's it's about continuing a discussion and, and not just talking about what's gone wrong, but how can we restore? What is it that's that's required for the future? It's sort of this persistent search for the truth in healthcare, for um, a demanding of the data, because I guess silence is a form of acceptance. And once you realise that our pandemic response was essentially totally opposite to our pandemic preparedness plans, that there was lots of evidence to suggest, you know, that lockdowns were a bad idea. And Professor Jay Bhattacharya basically came out and said that it, it's one of the gravest mistakes that have ever been made, um, that the masks were not effective. I knew that from post-grad um, studies, that there was basically no evidence for the effectiveness of masks and there was an increased risk if you don't use them properly and, and that was in our pandemic plans as well. Um, but how many people change them every you know couple of hours or use them properly? How many shove them in their handbags and reuse the same one for sort of weeks at a time, you know? And then the, the early treatments, we need to talk about early treatments and COVID treatments that are banned and still banned. Um, the, did the ivermectin ban cost lives? That was sort of based on the submission that we did to the TGA. And um, we need to always also talk about the strong signal of benefit that there are for these early treatments and then keep talking about the, the issues with the, the vaccines. You know, that it was two shots and we returned to normal, then three, four or more. So. Well, there are two sides to this, Cara. One is the, uh, the, the tyrannical tendencies that were immediately revealed as soon as the uh, virus was 
uh, revealed, was, was exposed and, and uh, spread. But the other side is that just how easily Australians uh, submitted to this new authoritarian uh, um, circumstance. And I think we need to address how quickly people are, you know, are, are willing to forget what happened over those two or three years. A lot of people, I think, these days look back on it and just think it's glad, they're glad it's over and want to move on. Uh, in my opinion, I think doing so makes us vulnerable to the uh, uh, authoritarians doing it all over again. What's your advice to people who just want to move on and forget about what happened? Well, I'm concerned that if we don't demand an accountability for harmful decisions um, for a lot of the, that from their own reports are unscientific and quite unjustified that have caused, you know, a great deal of physical, social, economic harm, then what would deter our, I guess, our authoritarians from doing the same thing again? Because, you know, like the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So unless we de demand the transparency in decisions, so no more will we do anything on secret health advice, um, which we still can't get anything from, even parliamentarians can't get the health advice. Um, if we allow governments to be the single source of truth and there is no intellectual freedom and no open scientific debate, our own plant pandemic plan said that there would be engagement with the front line, but instead of engagement, there was censorship. Um, if we allow our governments to totally censor all dissent um, so that you're only allowed that one point, it's more important that you believe what we're doing is right rather than what we are doing is actually right. Um, and if we don't demand access to the raw data for these mandated injections when, you know, there is safety signals and, and that they pause and, and review, then essentially we're just being governed and told what to do and are we really a free people? And I well, guess that goes back right to... That's a, that's a very good, good question. question. <laughs> are, are we free? Hopefully you'll be able to answer that question at your conference tomorrow. Cara Thomas, thanks so much for your time. That's Cara Thomas of the Independent Medical Union, Australian Medical Practitioners Society, which is holding a conference in Sydney tomorrow to discuss how the profession can restore the public's trust after, after the disasters of the COVID pandemic and vaccines. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. The great Alan Jones is up next at 8 p.m. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.